Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We're currently studying verse by verse through the book of Esther, the story of God's perfect work through imperfect people. So open your Bible and join us as we remind ourselves that in every situation, God is in control. Well, why don't you open your Bibles with me to Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6, we're going to be continuing, sort of coming on the back end of our series, verse by verse through the book of Esther. Again, reminding ourselves week after week that God accomplishes his perfect work, his unstoppable plan through imperfect people like you and I, through imperfect people like Esther and Mordecai and an unrighteous king and a horrible bad guy named Haman, that God will accomplish his good purpose. He did it in the book of Esther, and he will do it in our life. Well, while you're turning to Esther chapter 6, we're going to read this whole chapter this morning, and this part of the book is actually sort of the the climax of the divine comedy that God is writing into the story of Esther. That all these different parts and pieces that God has been putting together are now coming into this moment. And it's like when you watch a movie or you're reading a book or a story where the author has written in this sort of funny, ironic, everything sort of collides at one time type of climax. And that's what we're seeing right here in the book of Esther, chapter 6. And I want to tell you uh, that this book is written in narrative form. Uh, in other words, it, it, is, it is a story. It, it's not just a list of facts. And so as God inspired the author to write this, it, it was actually in God's mind that this would be funny. There are so many things within this that are humorous, that are ironic. And sometimes things are funny in our life because uh, we get up to that, that moment and then things go a completely direct, different direction than we thought they would. Uh, we, we were talking about this in the office this week and... A uh, couple interesting things have happened in the past week or so. Uh, one of them is the Baseball Hall of Fame great Yogi Berra died. Uh, one of the all-time characters of the game of baseball, known probably to my generation less for the way he played the game and more for the way he talked about it. He always had these, these funny one-liners. and it, There was some sort of a story. In fact, I looked it up. I was trying to find it, and I couldn't find it. But the, the gist of it was that he was speaking with a fireman, uh, Something to do with they were coming to his house, and, and they said, well, how do, we, how do we get to your house? And he sort of looks at him and says, don't you have a fire truck? See, we, when things kind of go this opposite direction, we're, we're thinking, okay, well, he's asking for directions, and then the words or the actions seem completely different. It strikes us funny. There's other times where things are funny because it is all these different events that are converging at one time, and it's so unavoidable. It's not the surprise where we didn't see that coming. It's the opposite. This was so unavoidable that the way it got put together is actually hilarious. Uh, You see this in books. You see this in movies. And it's a good, I think, illustration of the fact that God, just like the author of a book, just like the writer of a movie, God is writing the story of human history, and he's written you and I into it. And yet God is the author, so he gets to write this story however he likes. And things end up being funny. For instance, if you are the long-lost hero who's coming to save the princess and you're facing certain death by poisoning or something like that. In fact, just go ahead and play the video. I think that'll give you a better idea. trying to trick me into giving away something. It won't work. It has worked! You've given everything away! I know where the poison is! Then make your choice. I will! And I choose... What in the world can that be? What? Where? I don't see anything. Oh, well, I, I could have sworn I saw something. I thought no matter. <laughs> <laughs> What's so funny? I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. First, let's drink. Me from my glass. And you, from yours. (laughs) You guessed wrong. 
You only think I guess wrong. That's what's so funny. I switched glasses when your back was turned. Ha <laughs> ha, you fool. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia. But only slightly less well known is this. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> Now, here's the great thing about a video clip like that. And we, we don't show a whole lot of movie clips because we really want to put our focus on the Word of God and not how pop culture interprets things. Uh, but within this thing, you have several, I think, excellent illustrations of exactly what we're talking about this morning. Uh, the good guy is going to win. Like, in this scenario, the good guy is going to win. But here's, here's the ridiculousness of how we look at things. Sometimes we look at the world, and we look at life, and this passage we're going to read, we are even tempted to look at God and say, God, this is so hopeless, I'm not sure that you, the ultimate good guy, are going to win this one, because our world and the devil seems to be so evil. It is ridiculous to the level of Carl Hughes, the, the actor who was playing the good guy, sitting there in this scene with the cameras rolling, thinking, oh gosh, what if I drink the poison? What if I die? What, what, if, I, what if I don't make it? See, the reality is he knows that there is a story that has been written and it is finished, it is accomplished, and in fact, this thing that is playing out in front of me is not the end at all. For him, it wasn't even real. For God, he has written all of human history, all the things that will be and won't be, the beginning to the end, and he knows them all. And God never, think about this for a second, God never spends one anxious moment. Not one. There, there's not a moment in the history of God the Father where he has had one moment of anxiety that things would not work out right. Think about that. He is ultimately in control Sometimes we, we go about our lives and we go about our Christian walk as if God is not the sovereign of the universe. And I think we misunderstand the author of our story. God has a totally different perspective than we do. In this book of Esther we've been looking at, uh, Esther and Mordecai have this plan. This, this sort of scheme that they have written. And up to this point, we're still not sure if it's going to work. Up to this point in the story, we're, we're not sure how it's going to play out. Is it going to save the Jews? Is it going to save God's people? Is it going to save their lives? Or is it going to cost them everything? We don't know. Haman, the bad guy, has a plan. He's been scheming and plotting and all of his hateful actions going on behind the scenes. Yet with all of that, here's what Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Can I just say something before we jump in to our, our text this morning? There are all kinds of different ways to approach uh, God and how he speaks to his people and how God uses circumstances in our lives. And I, I don't think we all have to think exactly the same about that. We don't all have to believe exactly the same. Here's where we have to start, that God will accomplish his plans. Now, however you believe we get there, however you think God speaks to you, and, and the ultimate way that we're going to come back to again and again and again is through his word, but God is speaking in all other ways as well. And yet the thing we can never, ever get away from, that God will accomplish his plans. God will establish even your steps. Stand up with me. Let's read together Esther chapter 6. Again, we stand to honor God. We stand to honor his word. Esther 6 verse 1 says, On that night, the king could not sleep. He gave orders to bring the book of the memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men attended him, said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. 
So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman says to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man that the king delights to honor, let the royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden, and those on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes of the horse robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king... I wonder what he sounded like when he said that. (laughs) Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all their friends everything that had happened to him. Then the wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried him to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that even the passage that we read today reminds us that you are the author of human history. Lord, not just the history of the world, God, you are the author of my life story. You are the author of every person in this room, of the the wonderful things and the tragic things, God, of, of things that we count as glory and the things that we count as pain. And God, because that is true, we're actually able to say you will use all of it for good because we know that's who you are. God, if this world was just random events, we would be without hope. But because we know that you are the author, we have hope. Not in the events of this world, not in our ability to figure it out. God, we have hope in you. So guide us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, our story this morning kind of picks up in a strange place. There's been a lot of events, a lot of activity going on. The book of Esther really is written like you're reading a story or watching a movie, and the next scene opens, and it's not a bunch of events going on. It's actually bedtime. It's time where everybody is is sort of done with the day, kind of where we make the assumptions, you know, everything that's going to happen has happened. It's all over. It's just time to sleep, except God is at work even when you are asleep. And everybody else is sort of sleeping except for this king, this king who can't sleep, who's having this strange insomnia, anxious night. We don't know exactly why he can't sleep. Here, here's, there's a couple sort of things we can draw out of this. Uh, you and I are going to have sleepless nights from time to time. Anybody ever had surgery in here before? Anybody had minor surgery where you knew it was, it was no big deal? How'd you sleep the night before? Right? Like the whole night, even though you know it's minor, you're, you're worrying and you're fretting. You're going, what is this going to be like? What, what's it going to feel like? We have even small things that bring us anxiety. And some of you have walked through really, really hard places, and you know what it is to bear heavy anxiety in the night. Well, those sleepless nights, those worry, anxious times, are times where we can actually make a choice to remember the faithfulness of God. Now, that's not what the king did here. The, the king was bored, and we don't know why he chose this book. Of It's actually called, in the Hebrew, it's called The Days. It's just a, a, The Days of Our Lives, the original one written all, all the way back here. Uh, maybe it's because he liked the hearing the stories of all the stuff that he did, but he has these people in the middle of the night start reading back to him all the things that had happened, and it goes on so long, he sleeps so little during the night that by morning time, they actually get to five years previous. The events that we're reading about with Mordecai happened five years before this sleepless night with the king. Now, we don't necessarily have a story of every day of our life. Maybe if you've kept a journal, uh, you might have something like that. But all of us, whether you've kept a journal or not, on those dark, anxious nights can 
actively remind ourselves, okay, God, you know I am worried about this. How about you walk me back through your faithfulness through the years to me? How about you remind me, God, of the times when I was a young person and I wasn't chasing after you. I I didn't deserve to have your spirit save me, and yet you came after me. How about the times God worked in your family? Maybe he worked in your marriage. Maybe he worked in your kids. Uh, Remind yourself of the faithfulness of God. Rather than putting all of our attention and focus on the worry and the anxiety that we cannot control, how about we remind ourselves of the God who is in control of all things? I think it's a good lesson that we can learn from this. Here's the reality, though. When we think that we can actually figure it out because we are smart, or we put it together, or, or we don't actually need God, and, and I am the captain of my own soul. I'm the master of all things in my life, of my own destiny. The Scripture actually says that God laughs. That God actually laughs and makes fun of that idea. Keep, keep your finger here in Esther and flip forward in your Bible a little bit to Psalms chapter 2. We read this, I think, the first week that we started this series in Esther, Psalm chapter 2. Written in this great hymn book, stuck in the middle of your Bible, is this awesome passage where God, with, I think, a condescending smirk on his face, asks this question. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? What are they plotting? They're actually plotting against God against his plans, against his anointed. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So uh, all of the, all the great thinkers and the great minds and the great powers of this earth, greater than you and I, but I think you and I fall into this category, say, who's God to tell us what to do? Verse 3, let us burst the bonds apart. This is what they're saying about the, the laws of God that have been written. Let's burst their bonds apart apart and cast away the cords from us. Here's what verse 4 says. He who sits in heaven laughs. Now here's, here's a part of this verse we're not, we're not too comfortable with in a day and age where Jesus loves everybody. The Lord holds them in derision. That when, when people come and they exalt themselves against the Lord. And they say, God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I want no part of you. In fact, I think you're ridiculous that God laughs and actually holds them in derision. Now, God doesn't laugh at our pain. All right, hear hear me real carefully here. God doesn't laugh at our strugglings, at those dark nights of the soul. God doesn't laugh when genuine believers have real times of disbelief. Are, Are you listening to me, church? Because everybody at some point is going to have some situation that comes into your life and you are going to be faced with a decision, not a feeling, that the feeling is going to be there. It's a decision that you're faced with that says, who will I trust in this situation? Will I trust my feelings that tell me that God is not good and God is not in control? Or will I trust that there is a good God who holds all things in the palm of his hand? God is not laughing and mocking those people wrestling to find that place in him, wrestling to find, God, I know you're good, but I just can't see it. That's real life, guys. God doesn't make fun of that. In fact, God sends a comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be right there in the midst of that, to say, let me just walk with you. Let me just show you. Isn't that what God has done in the past? In some of your darkest times, And even right in the midst of that, God reminds you of his faithfulness through the years. God reminds you of his love and his kindness towards you. And yet for those who choose against God, for people, for demonic things, for the devil himself, God holds derision. And it's it's actually almost a sarcastic thing. If you took the time, we're not going to take the time to flip there, but if you looked... In 1 Kings chapter 18, the prophet Elijah is coming up against 450 of the prophets of this old god named Baal. And he is sort of like the dominant figure of the pagan worship in this area. And the people of God are kind of going back and forth. Sometimes it's like sometimes they go to church and then sometimes they go to the pagan temple, if you want to put it in those terms. And the prophet Elijah says, enough, it's time to actually make a decision. He says in verse 21 of 1 Kings 18, how long will you 
waver, will you decide between these two choices? If the Lord God is true, then serve him. And if Baal is true, then serve him. By the way, let's do a test, right? Because the Lord is God, Yahweh is God, and Baal is, is a God, right? So let's make a God test, not a people test. Let's make a God test. You guys bring a bull, and I'll bring a bull. You bring some wood, and I'll bring some wood. You bring some stones for an altar, I'll bring some stones, and let's see which God shows up. You guys go first. And so they take, they take this bull, and they cut it. And they put it on the altar uh, of stones with the wood stacked up, except here is the condition. You're not allowed to use fire for this offering. Your God has to provide the fire. And so the prophets of Baal start crying out, send the fire, send the fire, and nothing happens. So they dance and they sing, and nothing happens. It says from morning to noon, nothing happens. So then Elijah starts taunting them, and they start cutting themselves because, I don't know, maybe it works if, if we cut ourselves. And so there's, they're ble- I want you to picture this. Like these pagan priests, 450 of them, they're dancing, they're chanting, they're probably hoarse from shouting all day, right, because this is the big show. This is like the Super Bowl of God things. And at this point, Elijah begins to mock them from the sides. Here's what he says in verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them saying, maybe you should cry louder, for he is a god, right? Wait, perhaps he is musing. Perhaps he's thinking. Maybe he's in deep thought. You know, Scream a little louder, guys, because he can't hear you. Here's my personal favorite. Perhaps he is relieving himself. Maybe your god has stepped into the potty. <laughs> right? You need to knock on the door. Uh, maybe he's on a journey. Perhaps he's fallen asleep and must be awakened. There, there is this derision that Elijah is bringing, absolutely mocking the idea that there is any other God who can rival our God. When they're all done, when the day is gone, and they're either out of voices or out of blood, I don't know, I don't know what the deal was, they're done, and Elijah says, all right, let's try this for real now. Except instead of just having the same test, he, it, this is in a period of time where it hasn't rained like, there, there's this drought that's going on in this time. And he says, I want you to bring water and douse the whole thing with water. Awesome. Do it again. Douse the whole thing with water. Awesome. Do it again. And it's so much water that they had dug a trench around it, and it fills up not only the whole altar, but all of the trench and the, the ground around it. And then he prays this. Verse 36. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham. I want you to notice there's no, there's no shouting. There's no screaming. There, there's no big production. There's no cutting. Just a man talking to a God who is actually there. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, that you have turned their hearts back. Verse 38. This is so simple. Then the fire of the Lord fell. All the prophet does is ask a question of God. All the prophet does is is ask of the Lord, who actually has the power to do all things, and then the fire fell. And if you go down and read the rest of the way through it, it consumes the altar, consumes the stones, consumes the water, consumes even the dust that was around it, and the people fall on their face. When looking at two gods standing face to face with each other, and it was never actually a competition, and say, Yahweh, He is God, the Lord, He is God. Folks, I, I want you to, I want you to. Li- if you don't listen to another thing I say all day, I want you to catch this: there is no struggle against God's power and authority that He is not allowed. There is no struggle against God's power and authority that He is has not allowed. Because he is the supreme, almighty God of the universe, there is no power that can rival him. And somehow we have this, we, have, we start with a weird idea that the devil and Jesus, or God, if they sat down face to face in an arm wrestling match, like, it would be neck and neck. Like, it's going to take all of human history, and then actually everybody's going to lose, and then just at the last second, Jesus is going to pull out a, a last second victory. I was thinking football. I almost said a Hail Mary at the end, but that would, 
That would have been different. Uh, <laughs> no, I know, that was bad. That was bad. <laughs> That's wrong. All the challenges to God's authority that exist on the earth is because God has given them permission to exist on the earth. If God, he doesn't even have to snap his fingers. If he thinks it, everything that is opposed to him will be instantly gone. Like God is supremely in control. And we, it's as if we have this movie picture of the world all completely backwards that God is, is just barely hanging on. In fact, right now we look at our history and go, actually, God is losing. He's losing rather significantly because our world is getting so dark and there's so much deception and there's so much evil. Our God is losing. And we're going to, we, there's usually a couple things people do. We're going we're gonna to hang on and slowly shrink and slowly shrink until the world completely goes to hell. But thank God, right, the church gets raptured up at the last minute. Like, world goes to hell, the world for which Jesus died. But luckily, right, we all get to all fly away, oh glory. Now, now, the Bible says that we are going to meet the Lord in the air, but it wasn't until the mid-1800s that anybody ever even used the word rapture. Because the church has always had this persecuted position in the earth, and we've always believed we're not hanging on until Jesus comes. We're hanging on until Jesus wins. Did you guys catch that? Most of you are just ticked because I knocked on rapture there. Anyway, stick with me. Don't, don't lose me on that. God is working. God is speaking. God is working and speaking even through things like insomnia. Even the fact that this king cannot sleep. Now, there's other places in the Bible where God uses dreams and visions to communicate what he wants to do. Here he's going to use sleeplessness. And again, I said this is, this is all irony. This is the timing of God being written into this story. And Jason actually referenced it earlier in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, said at the cross that he defeats his enemies, and he makes a public spectacle of them. i got to be honest. I'm not super comfortable with making public spectacles of people. I'm one of those people who, gosh, I hope, <laughs> to the best of my ability, is a nice guy. And if I have a disagreement with someone, I'm going to do the right thing, kind of pull them aside and say, hey, you know, let's talk about this. Uh, you know, I don't want to publicly embarrass you. I'm not going to publicly talk bad about you. But, you know, we need to talk about this. That's not how God approached things at the cross. He made a public mockery of the devil triumphing over him in the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Check it out. And in this story, we see these things just happening. Right? Esther just happens to get in this place that she is within the palace. Mordecai just happens to be at the gate and break up this uh, assassination plot. Now you fast forward all these years and the king just happens to be sleepless and he just happens to come across this book of the days and he just happens to be so sleepless that he goes through five years of history on the very morning at the very time where Haman, remember Haman in, in the story before, is plotting to kill Mordecai. And him and his friends and his wife, who just like totally bashed on him a second ago of what we read, the last time we see them, they're like, yeah, how about you build a giant impaling pole, 75 feet tall, and let's put Mordecai's dead rotting carcass on that for the whole city to see. That says Haman is in control. I'm guessing Haman had a little bit of a sleepless night as well. Not because he was anxious, but because he was excited. Now, we don't know exactly the timing here. But I think the most logical reading of this is Haman is so excited about what's going to happen, he gets up super early because he beats everybody else into the court of the king. And he's just standing there. Like, he's all jacked up. Like, he doesn't even know what to do. He hasn't even drank Mountain Dew or anything. Teenagers, this was before that, right? But he, he's just, like, all twitching. He doesn't know what. And he's just waiting for the king to show up. And the king's kind of back in his chambers having this story read to him. And he's like, you know what? we got to do something because he just happened to read the story of Mordecai. And he says, who's out there? Well, we know that Haman has showed up because he plans on having Mordecai killed. And so the king says the words that Haman has probably wanted to hear his whole life. Hey, don't just stay back in the court. Come back in my personal chambers. Come back with me where nobody gets to go. Come, come back into this place of ultimate honor. 
this is pretty awesome, because uh, Haman showed up with a message. His message was, hey, king, we need to kill Mordecai. And the king says, hey, by the way, Haman, come, come back here. I, w- I want to ask you something. Have you ever had your boss call you into his office, and he says, I want to ask you something, and he's got that little smirk on your face, uh, on his face, and you're like, this is going to be good. No? How many of you had your boss call you into office with that little frown on his face? Okay, all right, so you're still with me, right? And you're like, it's going to be bad. See, that's what Haman should have been thinking, but he wasn't. He was thinking, man, this is awesome. The king asks, what's been done for Mordecai? And his attendants respond, nothing. Actually, literally in the Hebrew, they say not a word has been said about this. Mordecai saves the day, and not a word is ever mentioned. Now, it's real easy because uh, I think we don't spend enough time reading our Bible and there's uh, complete idiots out there like Bill Nye, the science guy, who refer to this as a 5,000-year-old book that is meaningless for today. Let me ask you a question. Has anybody here ever felt like you did something and then you got completely missed? You worked hard. You did something good. Now, if we did something bad, we're like, thank God they missed it, right? Uh, But if you do something that's above and beyond the call of duty, it's actually really hard when it feels like we get missed. Imagine how Mordecai felt saving the king's life back in chapter 2. We can go back and read that story. And then nothing, not a word. There's no thank you. There's no plaque. There's no honor. There's not, there's not even a word that is spoken about it. In fact, when you read chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then the king promotes Haman to prime minister. Awesome. So my arch enemy just got promoted, and I don't get anything. Now, since then, put, you, put yourself in Mordecai's shoes for a second. Since then, the last five years, Haman has gone up and up and up. He is actually at the top position that you can have under the king in the country right now. And not a single word has ever been said about that thing that you did to save the king's life. In fact, for the last five years, the only thing Mordecai has done is got up every morning and went to work. Guys, I think there's a real lesson in not living our lives for the applause of somebody else, but living it in faithfulness in honor of God. Trusting that God, in the end, will actually accomplish his good plans. That's what Mordecai did. And yet Haman just kind of seems to be rolling. In fact, there's times in our lives where it can kind of feel like, and I want you to catch that word feel. It can feel like, I don't know, maybe God stepped away for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I know God's in control. I, I know, God, that he's more powerful than I am, you know, that I trust him. It just, let's be honest, it just doesn't feel like it right now. Like this thing that's come into my life, it sure doesn't feel like he's in control of this. We're tempted to think some of those things that Elijah actually said about those false prophets. Maybe he stepped away. Maybe he's thinking about something else. He's not thinking about you. Maybe he's busy. Maybe God doesn't care that much about me, especially when we see evil winning and good people losing. Well, after a long time of watching evil win, we are tempted to not just say, I don't think God's not in control. God, I don't think you're just. I don't think you're fair. I don't think you're good. Malachi chapter 3, if you want to flip over there, you can. Last book in the Old Testament, right before the New Testament. Malachi chapter 3. One of the things the prophet Malachi does is ask these rhetorical questions, and then he answers for the people. And here's the question that he asks. On behalf of God, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, and here's here's the question, how have we spoken against you? So the people go, God, I don't know what you're talking about. What, What do you mean that we've spoken hard against you, that we've been speaking bad against you? And here's God's reply. You have said it's in vain to serve God. What's the point of serving God? Why bother being a good person? Why bother being a Christian? Why bother being one of God's chosen people? It's in vain. What's the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. We, we call evil, evil doers 
We see them, they don't only prosper, but they actually test God and they escape. God, I don't think you are in control. If you were in control, God, you would never let these people get away with that. God says that is a very dangerous accusation to make against him. Job chapter 1, verse 21 says this. This, I think, is a much better response. Job 1, 21, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrong. There's a lot of times that we have heard this verse, and I, I guarantee most of you in this room have heard that verse before. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Most of us forget that very next verse that comes after that says, it's actually sin when we charge God with wrongdoing. It's not sin to have questions. It's not sin to have doubts. But when we let those doubts and those questions sort of just exist within us and take over our mind and take over our heart until the place where they take over our mouth and they take over our life and we say, God, I don't believe that you are good. And God says that is sin. If you look back at Mordecai, he's not our role model. He's not the guy we look to in this story going, Mordecai, you've got to tell me what to do when I'm misunderstood. I'm looking to you, big guy. He's not our hero in this story. In every story that we read, Christ is the hero. These are shadows. These are human, weak shadows that point to the greatness of who he is. And yet, I think we can still learn some stuff from him. We can remember that our job is not to be God. Remember, God's job is to work, Romans 8, 28, all things together for good. That's not your job. Your job is not to figure it all out. Your job is not to work it all out, to make sure that it happens. Our job is to work faithfully and trust that God will do his job. That you are faithful and you are diligent even on the days where you don't even feel, listen to me, you don't feel like getting out of bed. This world has been so crushing, so overwhelming to your spirit. It is an act of worship when you say, God, my heart is broken and yet I trust you. I, I don't trust you in, in some like out there spacey sort of way that you're going to make me happy in the midst of this. I trust you. You're going to give me strength to get up out of bed and keep going because I know you're still on the throne. That's a whole different level of worship than I have to feel a certain way to believe something about God. How much greater when our choice to worship actually contradicts the way we feel and we choose it rather than just feel it. Well, Haman comes into this full of feelings of joy and excitement, knowing he's going to get to put to death this nemesis, this thorn in his flesh of Mordecai. And when the king says, come here, I want to ask you a question, he assumes it's all about him. And the king says, what should I do for the one that I delight to honor? And his assumption is, it's got to be me. Like the king didn't say anything about a promotion, and the king can't give me a promotion because the only step after me is king. Like this has got to be me. And who else? I, I love when it actually says this. Verse 6, Haman says to himself, literally it says Haman says in his heart. Okay, can I give you a parenthesis? When you start saying things to yourself in your heart, it's usually not good stuff. Right? Haman says to himself in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? I'm a, I'm a pretty big deal in the voice of Ron Burgundy. So here's what he does. He suggests all of the things, right? He can't make himself king. So he says, how about you make me look like the king? Let's dress him up in the king's robes that he wore. Let's, let's put him on the king's horse that the king has ridden. Uh, and the horse is even going to have a crown on it, which is pretty awesome. We're going to parade him through the streets saying, this is how the king treats those that he loves, that he delights to honor. And the king says, and here's where the irony just gets awesome. Good, go and do that. And he's, you know, can't you see the smile on his face? For Mordecai the Jew, smile falls off of the face and the heart falls into the shoes, right? <laughs> right? He came in to ask this question, may I please kill Mordecai? He never even gets the words out of his mouth because the king jumps right in. This is awesome. This is incredibly ironic. 
There's a couple things you may want to think about here. Uh, the king says, go do this for Mordecai the Jew. Now, if you remember, the king has just issued a proclamation that all the Jews are going to be killed in about 11 months. Right? Remember that? There's a, there's a pretty decent chance the king had no idea what people group. Because remember when it got it presented, there's a certain people who do this. There's a chance the king had no idea it was the Jews. Otherwise, it's a little bit ridiculous. Right? Imagine the day before D-Day, if President of the United States back in World War II, right? We know we're going to go storm the beaches of Normandy, and we go, you know what? But this Nazi guy, he's like a really great guy. Go do this for Hitler the Nazi. Let's have a parade for him in New York. I, I know he's done a lot of bad stuff, but let's just have a parade for Hitler the Nazi. That's ridiculous, right? You'd never say that if you knew the evil that those people were. If the king has decreed way worse than we did on D-Day, let's let every single German be killed. Let's let every single Jew be killed. There's no way he's going, oh, let's do this for Mordecai the Nazi. It makes no sense. There, there's a pretty good chance the king had no idea what was going on. Or, my personal favorite, like some current politicians, never bothered to read the things they were signing. I don't know. Could be. <laughs> Again, there is there's this awesome stuff. Because he says, says to Haman, go and do for Mordecai the Jew what you have said. So Mordecai has to, because he said, let the royal robes be put on him. Mordecai is the one put it, uh, standing there having Haman put on the royal robes. In the Hebrew, it actually says that Mordecai was helped onto the horse by Haman. It's kind of in the language that's there which it makes me think of all those like funny movies where the guy's helping him onto the horse and Mordecai's like stepping on his face and it's like <laughs> squishing his nose, you know. Like, I don't know what that looked like, but I have to think it was awesome because God is setting this up with a huge sense of humor. And when it's all over, Mordecai goes back to his job. He just goes back to work. Giant parade through Times Square with confetti in your honor. And what do you do at the end of that? Go back to work. Just like you've done every other day for the last five years with no notoriety, no attention. And yet Haman is destroyed. He goes home with his head covered to demonstrate humiliation and sorrow. He literally pulls something over his head and goes home. You actually see this in 2 Samuel. We're not going to take time to read it. 2 Samuel 15 verse 30 where David is going up the Mount of Olives and he covers his head in sorrow, he goes up barefoot with his head covered. And the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping and lamenting. So here's what he does. He goes home with this broken dream to his wife. Ladies, do you realize that you have the opportunity to be that helpmate encourager to your husband on rough days? You have that opportunity on good days, too, by the way. Uh, but on bad days, you get to be the first thing he sees when he comes home. Maybe he's had a horrible, I would like to quit my job type of day. And you can be the person who kind of strengthens him and encourages him and loves him and builds him back up. That's not what Haman's wife did. Even remotely close. See, she was in on the plot. She was in, in on the plot to kill Haman. She knew what the plan was for the Jews. How much? I mean, imagine how much this guy like talked about it in his house all the time. You know, the things that we love and the things that we hate, we tend to talk about all the time. She had heard it day and night. I hate the Jews. I hate Mordecai. I hate the Jews. And now he comes home, verse 13, and Haman told his wife Zeresh and their friends everything that had happened. See, they're waiting because they were going to, we talked about last week, how are we going to get him up on this pole? How are you going to impale a guy 75 feet in the air? How do you get him up there? Right? This is pre-helicopter. Right? So you couldn't do the, right? You couldn't, you couldn't just, never mind. Sorry. This is the picture that came in my head. So the friends are there to make this thing happen. They are anticipating the prime minister coming home with, yeah, let's go ahead, let's do this thing. So he tells them everything that happened. Then the wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you've already begun to fall, you are already wiping out, we can already see the makings of an epic fail, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. You will surely fall before him. As if that's not bad enough. As if it's not bad enough to go home brokenhearted and then your wife's like, well, yeah, because you're an idiot. 
Not a great idea, ladies. Anyways, uh, that's what Zeresh does. While they're in the midst of saying, you're an idiot, and you're going you're gonna to go down big time, there's a knock on the door, and it's the eunuchs who are there to take him to this party that 10 minutes ago he was super excited about going to. Oh, the king has been invited. I'm the only other one who's been invited to Queen Esther's banquet. And now he's like, oh, no. What's going to happen next? Everybody else seems to realize that Haman is on course to fail in just a huge way. And I think more importantly that the providential hand of God is working behind the scenes on behalf of his people. See, they recognize something. This sounded like a great plan until everything seemed to be converging to work against you, and now they say, you know what, there's a chance. If this Mordecai really is a Jew and we've plotted to kill the Jews, everything is going to be ruined because God seems to be fighting on their behalf. So real quick as we wrap this up, if we're not looking to Mordecai as the hero, we're certainly not looking to Haman as the hero. Every story should point us towards Christ. It should point us towards the gospel. And here's the first thing I think we can take away from this. The best plans and schemes of man are no guarantee of success. The best plans, the best scheme, the best team working on it to put it together is not a guarantee of success. It's not a guarantee on on the evil side. When the wicked seem to triumph, when the world seems too stupid to realize what's going on. Have you ever felt like that? Those are the days that you swear off Facebook, right, as we all do from time to time. Some of you are just crazy enough to repost it again and again. That's it. I'm leaving forever. I think every time that happens, two weeks later, everybody should be like, welcome back. (laughs) You're going to want to copy and paste that so next time you get ticked, you can just drop it right in there. Uh, Isn't that what we do? Like, this world is so bad, I'm checking out. Evil is triumphing, and evidently most of the people I know are too stupid to recognize it. Can I, can I just give you a little, a little help here, guys? With I, I mentioned Facebook. Let's just have a, a biblical Christian ethic of Facebook, okay? Uh, you are not going to convince anybody to believe something different on Facebook. Are, are you hearing me? I'm not saying it's not a good forum for ideas and conversations, but if someone is antagonistic and attempting to be angry about something, God has blessed you with something called the delete and block button. Be done with it. Okay, good talk. All right. Good job. Don't don't lower yourself as a Christian to public humiliation, uh, which will deteriorate into name-calling. Are you with me? Take the high road, y'all. All All right. Good talk. Don't go home and, like, delete your sister-in-law, okay? (laughs) Don't do that. Our pastor said, man, (laughs) I did not want to, but you are crazy. Okay. The best plans and schemes are no guarantee of success. It's no guarantee that the bad guys are winning. Here's the other side, church. It's no guarantee that our best and bravest plans or our most sincere hopes and prayers means that we will succeed. You can be diligent on your knees before the Lord and say, God, This is the deepest desire of my heart. And God says, I love you, and I'm going to help you walk through this. But that's not how it's going to go. We don't have that guarantee of success just because we had the best plans or just because we even prayed about it. So we don't look to Mordecai, and we don't look even to ourselves. We actually look to Christ. We see him alone when we're enduring unjust treatment. Worship team, if you guys want to come up. When you're dealing with stuff at work or at home where a coworker or a boss or your spouse seems to be unjust and unfair and not seeing you and completely missing it, and no matter how much you talk and talk and talk and talk, you just can't seem to fix it, we don't look to our, our ability to fix it. We look to Christ alone. When evil seems to prevail, when our world gets darker, and this is usually how it goes, the closer we get to like a presidential election, the less good any of the people running seem to look. 
Our hope is not in the political system. Uh, we live in a fantastic political system, yet that is not where our hope is. Our hope is in Christ alone for the nation of America. Did you hear that, church? Our hope is in Christ alone. We Sometimes we are willing to risk everything for God. We're, we're willing to risk everything for our family, for our freedom. It's no guarantee it's going to work, and so we look to God to work all those things out. Here's a hard one. When we hold the life and the death of someone that we love up to God and we say, God, this person is yours. We've done everything that we can. They're in your hands. In that moment, more than any other, you better be looking to Christ alone. In that moment, we are calling God, be the sovereign God who saves. God, be the sovereign God who delivers. We look to Christ and we trust his sovereign grace above all earthly power. Would you stand with me on your feet? Now this story that we've read in the book of Esther is not your story. It it maybe doesn't even sound anything close to what your life story is, but I think if we took a little bit of time, maybe just pass the microphone around for a while, and you were able to tell your story of maybe some of the struggles you've had in the past, that God was faithful and he has brought you through. Maybe some of you would tell stories of your present, of questions that you have for your future, where you say, God, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure you're going to work all this out. I'm not sure how you can bring anything good out of this because it all seems so dark and hopeless. And maybe you feel like Mordecai, who didn't know that these chapters were coming. He just knew every morning, I'm getting up and I'm going to work and the bad guy's winning. In those days, you have to put your hope and your trust in something a whole lot bigger than your boss and a whole lot bigger than your spouse and a whole lot bigger than your ability to work that out. And that's we entrust ourselves to Christ alone, who has promised never to leave us and never to forsake us. He hasn't promised that everything is going to turn out perfect. He did promise he will never leave us and he will walk through it with us. And that in the end, he will, in fact, turn all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So let's, let's close as we sing together. And I, I want you to take whatever that thing is that would be your story. Whatever the thing is that you would maybe even hesitate to share into this microphone. And as, as we sing, as we worship, to turn that back towards God and say, God, I maybe don't know the answers to this question, but yet I'm trusting you, the one who has promised. I don't, have to, I don't have to handle it on my own. You've promised never to leave me. And I will trust you more than I trust how I feel about this situation. Let's worship God.